Okay, so you know how last month we had Valentine's Day? Well, I don't know about y'all, but I spent Valentine's Day with Mumsy because she is actually the greatest love of my life. And our tradition is just getting a whole bunch of trays of chocolates that sound fancy and then eating said chocolate while watching a fun movie. Something that I really love about these chocolate packages, though, is that they always have these overdramatic descriptions of the chocolates that are inside. And what I do is I read the descriptions out loud in a French accent, or at least my interpretation of what a French accent sounds like to me. And I saved some of those descriptions because I thought it would be really fun to share. All right, here goes. Listen to the pure poetry of the world that is chocolate. <clears throat> Dark opera inspired by the intensely enjoyable experience of an Italian opera, the bittersweet notes of the dark chocolate cup topped with delicate cocoa shavings give a richly nuanced and layered discovery of hazelnut and cocoa. Caramel Leonardo, delicately salted caramel in, is enrobed with a delectable milk chocolate in an elegant bite-sized masterpiece. Oh, this one's, this one's so good. Oh my God. Jean Dujot Ferrero. An homage to Jean Dujot, the solid hazelnut cream created in Ferrero's first pastry shop in 1936. This new and unique creamy confection made with precious Piedmont hazelnuts reveals a story of passion and dedication. Is that not the wildest description? I don't know. It sounds wonderfully dramatic to my ear. I love doing accents, FYI, they are super fun for me. I really love watching animated movies where Robin Williams is doing voice acting like Aladdin or Happy Feet because he really sounds like he's having the time of his life creating all these accents and voices and characters. To this day, if I come across a scene in animation with a particularly unique and fun voice acting moment, I will try and imitate it. Like I recently rewatched Lilo and Stitch and the first full English word that the actor voices for Stitch's character are, I'll, I'm lost. <laughs> if you thought that was a bad imitation, I don't care. It was fun for me to do in the first place. And that's what matters. My friends and I would also spend our time just randomly speaking in British accents growing up. You have to understand that we grew up with Harry Potter. So of course we thought any accent that made you sound like you belonged in the world of Harry Potter was cool. And doing British accents was our way of feeling cool. No shame, people. No shame. All right, enough stalling. Time to get into the podcast episode. Hello, folks. Welcome to my podcast, Layers in Media, A Perspective. I am your host, Aisha Sala. I got a lot of positive feedback for the last episode I posted, which I really appreciate because if I'm being honest, I was kind of nervous in the making of it. I don't know. I think at the beginning of my journey towards writing scripts or short stories that center Muslim characters, I felt compelled to play it safe and only only write positive characters that have to deal with a negative world. But at the end of the day, I realized that my writing was reactionary and mainly had to do with my frustrations towards white Hollywood and how they've demonized and stereotyped brown Muslim characters. I soon discovered that I wasn't interested in writing the perfect Muslim character. First of all, writing 
quote unquote, the perfect Muslim character is really a dangerous hole to dig yourself in as far as representation goes, because perfect doesn't actually exist. But also what I would consider to be the quote unquote, perfect Muslim might be completely different to someone else. Everyone has their own unique ideal. But the other part is I am just bored with the concept of the perfect Muslim. It's so one-dimensional and unrealistic and disconnected from reality. And it was that realization that made me embrace full on all the complexities and flaws that exist underneath the surface of our community. But while I might be excited to navigate those flaws and challenge the community to become better, I don't really know how other people will receive that narrative. I remember posting on my Instagram stories one time about how I think it is imperative for the Muslim community to evolve and shed the more insidious threads of homophobia and anti-blackness that exist in certain Muslim communities. And I ended up getting getting into an argument with someone in my DMs because he was upset that I was suggesting Islam was synonymous with anti-blackness. And for me, I was frustrated because he completely misinterpreted what I was saying. I never implied that Islam was racist, and truly, I never would. But I was highlighting the reality that racist Muslims exist. And instead of painting this perfect Muslim face for the public to see, we should put in the effort to acknowledge our flaws as a community so that we can challenge each other to become better. Alhamdulillah, the conversation ended amicably and we came to understand each other's views and emotions, but I was just shook from the experience because it opened my eyes to the, to the reality that even if I start an important and difficult conversation with good intentions to try and bring light to the right topics, there is always still the danger of being misunderstood, saying the wrong thing, rubbing people the wrong way and making them feel uncomfortable with my opinions and views. And honestly, this is a podcast. You are taking the time to listen to what I have to say and your time matters to me. You are important and I want to take you into consideration so that you feel like this is worth your time, but also I'm not here to play it safe. I'm, I'm not here to be happy-go-lucky. My hope is that during your time here, you will learn to think more critically about the Muslim experience, to appreciate the nuances that exist within those various experiences, and to question the extremely superficial representations of Muslims that you have been handed so that you can break those barriers and achieve a deeper of a deeper understanding of what encompasses being Muslim in this world. And I have decided that in order to continue down this path of broadening our understanding of the Muslim experience, it's time that we take on the topic of hijab. Before we delve into talking about hijab, I think it is really important to note that there is no way I will be able to cover everything that needs to be said to acknowledge all the experiences that exist under the concept of hijab. There are millions of different stories that all have unique views and emotions attached to the hijab. And so I want you to enter into this conversation recognizing that my voice is a drop in the ocean. That being said, the reason I want to focus on hijab is because I've come to realize that if you identify as a Muslim woman, the topic of hijab will follow you wherever you go, whether you wear hijab or not. If you are a Muslim woman who has always worn hijab, then you have dealt with the struggles of being visibly Muslim and the pressures that 
come with that role in society, whether the pressures come from within the Muslim community or come from the larger society that exists outside of the Muslim community. You are expected to talk a certain way and dress a certain way and wear your hijab in a certain way. And if you don't fit within the mold of Islamic representation that people insist you fill, then relentless criticism is inevitably going to come your way. Sister, if you dress like that, you should be just take it off. You should be ashamed of yourself for talking like that. The world sees you as Muslim, so you should only be saying the most Islamic things you can think of. And outside of the Muslim community, if Muslims are going to be physically or verbally attacked by prejudiced individuals, it is the woman wearing hijab who wears the target on her head. If people are going to ask questions about Islam, the woman who wears hijab is going to be asked to be the spokesperson for all two billion Muslims that exist, regardless of the reality that she is probably not an Islamic scholar and might just want to buy her damn groceries. If you are a Muslim woman who does not wear a hijab, then the conversation shifts. Your religion and spirituality will always be questioned, and no matter how devoutly you practice and strongly you believe, people will openly delegitimize your experience and try to strip you away from your Muslim identity. If you don't wear hijab, do you really believe in Islam? Why even call yourself Muslim if you aren't going to be like your righteous sisters who wear the hijab? You will constantly feel the need to preface any conversation about the religion with, okay, maybe I'm not the best Muslim, but I still believe this. You are constantly in danger of internalizing the criticism and are made to feel like your opinion and practice and belief are lesser than because you do not fit within the certain mold that societies have built for Muslim women to place themselves in. If you are a Muslim woman who did not wear the hijab for a long time and then made the decision to start wearing hijab, then you have to cope with society's uncomfortable adjustment to the change. People assume that you are becoming more radicalized and extremist and voice their discomfort with this new change. While Muslims within the community expect you to discuss how life has become significantly more beautiful since you started wearing hijab, you have to constantly contain and hide all the insecurities you actually feel because deciding to wear the hijab and actually stepping out in public with it on are extremely terrifying things to do and your faith has to be able to withstand so much change that is going to come at you all at once. You will be expected to, to delete every every single photo that you have ever posted on any of your social media pages showing your hair. And if you decide that you actually like those memories and want to keep them up, you have to deal with the onslaught of judgment that comes pouring your way because there is no point for you to wear hijab if people have already seen your hair. In other words, you do not fit within the requirements that people have created for Muslim women who wear hijab. And if you are a Muslim woman who has worn the hijab and decided to take it off, there is no end to the judgment and brutality and very rarely a beginning to the empathy. People will not ask you about the emotional and possibly physical trauma that you have that you had endured to push you to the point where you make the decision to take off the hijab. They will not care about your beliefs and experiences because in their eyes, taking off the hijab is just as sinful as leaving the religion and they will turn their back on you before you can get a word in edgewise. And in terms of the society at large, they will assume that you are liberated, free of a and then will become confused all over again when you correct them and clarify that you still are Muslim because they will insist that all of Islam is this wicked, oppressive religion and removing the hijab should be the equivalent of removing Islam from your life. So even if you decided to remove the hijab for your own safety and as a means to potentially cure the anxiety attacks that you have had to breathe through throughout your experience as a hijabi, you will still be haunted by the hijab because the absence of the hijab will follow you 
wherever you go. And your faith will have to endure so much heartache and disappointment because the consequences that society forces you to endure do not match the small action you took to make life just a little bit easier. Essentially, you did not fit into the mold that society has built for Muslim women, and therefore you will be punished accordingly. And that, of course, is only a fractional look within the American context. We haven't even discussed the governments that literally force women to wear hijab if they want to walk on the streets of their own country. And we haven't discussed the governments that literally force women to take off their hijab if they want to get a basic education or work for a living. Do you understand what I am trying to say here when I talk about the complexities that exist when discussing hijab. One of the most common questions I get when it comes to people asking me about my hijab is, were you forced to wear the hijab? The question in and of itself is deeply rooted within the American belief that Islam is synonymous with oppression, and therefore hijab must be the equivalent of a prison. You must understand that the American media has made it a mission to equate Islam with oppression because it justifies the invasion and occupation of several Muslim countries under the guise of liberating the women. Literally, after the media revealed that there were no weapons of mass description mass destruction in Afghanistan or Iraq, the Bush administration redesigned the narrative that they were force-feeding the public, and Laura Bush was sent around the country to give speeches about how they were going to continue sending soldiers into the Middle East to liberate the women, like death, war, and destruction ever result in anything even remotely resembling the liberation of women. But I digress. It is very important to note here that the hijab is a neutral concept that suddenly gains its power depending on who is making the decision. The hijab itself is not the prison. The patriarchy is. The patriarchy in its biggest and smallest forms has this insidious history of taking things that initially were meant to be tools of empowerment for women and turning them into tools of oppression to control women. Jobs, for example, were meant to be tools of, of empowerment to give women the ability to gain financial independence. Men requiring women to suck their dick, insisting that this was the only way she was going to get that job promotion, is how the patriarchy takes control of that tool of empowerment and transforms it into a tool of oppression. The hijab is one of those tools. If a woman decides to wear the hijab, that moment is hers and hers alone. She controls the narrative. She controls what people see, what she wants to reveal. She controls how she wants to be perceived and what she wants to gain from the experience. Struggles are inevitably going to come her way because society does not always respect women in hijab, but disrespect does not change the reality that the power of decision is still in her hands. And that is a form of empowerment that no one can take away. But if a man or a government decides that a woman must wear a hijab, the hijab suddenly transforms from being a tool of empowerment to becoming a tool of oppression. If a government decides to pass laws denying women education and employment if they continue to wear the hijab, the hijab ceases to become a tool of empowerment and transforms into becoming a tool of control. If a father forces his wife or daughter to wear hijab or gives his permission for them to take it off because times are rough, 
rough, the key detail here is that the men are centering themselves in a narrative that should belong to the woman. You guys remember hearing about or <laughs> possibly seeing that porn video that went internationally viral because it showed a woman in hijab sucking a guy's dick? The hijab is supposed to allow a woman to be in control of, of her own sexuality and how it is revealed. Men took the concept of hijab and sexualized it for millions of other men to masturbate to around the world. And then armies of men showed up out of nowhere condemning the same shit that they were masturbating to and banning the female porn star from traveling to various countries. Wearing hijab at its core should be a simple matter of faith and how a woman decides to practice it. But the patriarchy and how it manifests within society, culture, and politics have forced women to approach the concept of hijab differently. If a woman decides to take her hijab off in Iran, it is a form of protest against a government that should not have the right to tell women what to wear. If a woman decides to wear the hijab in France, it is a form of protest because a government should not be allowed to steal opportunities of education and employment from women simply because they want to openly practice their faith. The patriarchy is so terrified of losing control that women can't have something as simple as a scarf without them scrambling to twist the narrative to their benefit. And us Muslim women, we have engaged in these petty and pathetic conversations because we think it matters for Americans to know that Islam is not the equivalent of oppression. In the end, the only thing that actually matters is our faith. Hijab or no hijab, take the time to educate yourself on the rights that Islam very specifically grants to women. Don't take a man's word for it. Learn the history of women in Islam. Learn from our female scholars. At that point, it won't matter what governments or society has to say about you as a Muslim woman. That's the power of education and Islam. If you are at peace with the relationship you have built with your hijab, then I hope the feeling of empowerment far outweighs the struggles that come with it. If you are struggling with the concept of hijab, whether you're wearing it, thinking of wearing it, or thinking of taking it off, remember that those struggles are valid. Those emotions are real. And maybe you'll find people who sympathize or empathize, but no one truly knows what is in your heart of hearts except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes, Islam is a way of life, but Islam is also a religion of convenience. It is not supposed to be hard. Everyone's path is different. And while the hijab is a point of empowerment for some, it can be a point of actual physical harmful danger for others or a point of emotional and psychological struggle. And that is not Islam. Islam is supposed to be a point of peace and power for us. And the politicization of the hijab on a global scale has stolen that possibility away from millions of women. The best that we can do is find refuge in our faith. And remember that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the most forgiving and the most merciful. And attempting to survive in a violently patriarchal world is not a sin. My hope is that we as Muslim women, or really anyone who takes the time to listen to this podcast episode, will leave this space with a little bit more compassion for those of us struggling around the world. We are, all of us, fighting our own battles within ourselves, within the Muslim community, and within the society at large. And a little compassion goes a long way. 
you are listening to the podcast Layers in Media, A Perspective, and I am your host, Aisha Sala. Catch you next time, folks.